Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Plenty to get to on this week's episode. We have another title and a a continuing winning streak from Iga Sviantek. Carlos Alcaraz is champion in Barcelona. Bianca Andrescu's back on tour. Andre Rublev beat Novak Djokovic. And Mikey also had a great interview with doubles player Aaron Routliff. And we'd like to thank Hotel X for this week's episode, the official hotel of Matchpoint Canada. Mike, so much to get to. And perfect place to start is your conversation with uh, Aaron Routliff, a uh, doubles player who's been inside uh, the top 30 and been a, a mainstay on the tour for some time yeah she just hit her uh, top ranking of uh, i think 34th on the wta and doubles and at the age of 27 you know not that that's late in your career but uh, to have a, a career high at that stage must be incredibly rewarding and i'd always been interested by aaron's story because yeah, even in her twitter bio and her instagram bio it says like proud kiwi slash canadian uh, alluding to her dual citizenship mm-hmm. but i could never really know for sure like how did that play out how exactly does she represent both countries and well she represents New Zealand on the tennis court but she definitely still considers herself as Canadian as as you or me so it was great to get to the bottom of that and uh, her parents have a really cool story I'll wait till she elaborates in the actual interview but it is kind of cool how she ended up being born in New Zealand and um, yeah super nice to chat with I'd seen her play uh, a couple times before and just one of those players who's always out there smiling and seems to love what she's doing and uh, that definitely came across in the interview. So uh, why don't we throw to that right now and uh, we'll wrap up in a few uh, moments. Happy to be joined now on Matchpoint Canada by New Zealand's Erin Routliff. Erin has represented Canada in the past, so there's an obvious connection to having her on our podcast. She's also up to a career high of number 34 in doubles on the WTA and has made the finals in St. Petersburg and more recently the quarterfinals in Miami to continue her rise in the rankings. Erin, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to Matchpoint Canada. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Got to give a shout out to Jennifer Bishop from Tennis Canada for uh, putting us together for this. And, uh, you know, we've been trying for a couple of months and it's finally worked out through no fault of your own, but just busy schedules and, and life on my end. So I'm happy that we finally got you here. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to her for sure. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm uh, eager for you to tell us right off the bat, because I know our, our listeners will be curious a little bit about your New Zealand slash Canadian roots. I was <laughs> looking at your Instagram earlier and it says Kiwi uh, dash Canadian tennis player. So why don't you fill in our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with your background, uh, how both countries play into things for you? Yeah, so um, both my parents are, well, we're Canadian or are Canadian, and um, they, when they were like in their early 30s, they decided to take a trip sailing around the world, Um, and then they, what happened was my mom got pregnant, obviously, somewhere along that trip. It was like two or three years in, I think. I always kind of get it wrong. Um, They met a couple Kiwis wherever they were, and they're like, oh, you should have your baby in New Zealand, and so my parents were like, oh, that would be cool, and so they like literally sailed to New Zealand and then I was born there um they tell me like that you know the first year of my life I was on the sailboat living in the Auckland Harbor which is kind of cool um and then they just fell in love with the country and they decided to you know put down some roots there they bought a house found jobs all that um so me and then I have two younger sisters that were also born in New Zealand um and then when I was I think four or something like that um 
my dad's dad and my mom's and they wanted to spend more time with their parents my grandparents so they moved back to Canada and so I was you know born and raised part of it in New Zealand and then I was raised um, outside Toronto and Caledon for the rest of my childhood so that's why you know I've always had dual citizenship um I didn't go back to New Zealand very much at all when I was a kid or even a teenager um but yeah uh, I've always had it so it was like it was something that was always possible basically that, that story makes your parents sound like two of the coolest people I've ever heard of <laughs> two or three years sailing around the world and then oh where's a nice place to have a kid oh maybe New Zealand just like that <laughs> yeah and they ended up um back then it was no, I mean, not easy, but it was easier to get um, New Zealand citizenship. So they have it um, as well, which is nice. Is that something that's like part of your family? Like, do you guys do sailing trips? Is that a, a Routliff family activity nowadays? Or <laughs> Well, we did when I was younger. We used to um, like just sail on like the Great Lakes, like Huron. And I'm sure we went to other ones, but honestly, I was so young. I don't remember. Um, he was a sailor. My dad was a sailor when he was younger. Like he did it competitively. So he, it was always in his family. Um, and yeah, but we sold our sailboat, I think in Canada when I was like, I want to say 12 or 13. So I hadn't really done much, but then when I, um, decided to visit New Zealand, my senior year of university and see like family friends, they had, it's called the city of sales. So they had a sailboat and it's like such a huge culture thing. There is sailing, which to me was crazy because I'd grown up, you know, knowing that my parents had done this wild trip and I had sailed with them, but I'd never met other people that were so into it. So I thought that was really, really cool. So I did get to go on the boat with some family friends and, you know, every time I go back there, I go and I, I do feel like, um, like I, I mean, that's so weird to say, but I do like love being on the water. Like it's so fun. And I'm like, oh, well I kind of was born on it. So it makes sense. <laughs> I guess so. Where where do you where do you call home these days? Like when you do get downtime from the tour, which is obviously few and far between having those moments, where do you spend it? Where do you call your your home base? Um in Montreal. I rent an apartment there with my sister Tess. Um I've been in Montreal since or had an apartment there with her since uh like over a year now. So um, yeah, it's hard, obviously, being on the road all the time. Your home base is like you're not there very often. But um, I decided that I would I was I wanted to, you know, see some family when I was back at home and getting that relaxing time. And she her roommate moved out. And so I was like, well, this is perfect. So I moved in with her. And it's been really nice. That's uh, that's my hometown, actually, where I'm from. I live in Toronto now, but I was born and raised in Montreal. And uh, I haven't been back in over two years because mostly because of the pandemic and just not wanting to travel and move the kids around right now. But uh, right. That, that's where my heart is for sure. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I love it. I mean, obviously, I lived there in high school. I don't know if you know that, but I, in, I lived there in high school to train at NTC. So I know Montreal quite well. And now I'm trying to get to know it a little bit better. I'm working on my French, but... <laughs> uh. <laughs> on peut pratiquer si tu veux. We can practice a little. <laughs> Maybe not on a podcast. <laughs> okay, okay. Off air, and then next time we'll try and throw yeah. that in. How's that? Yeah. Perfect. I didn't. I didn't script that one. Okay. Um, <laughs> did Did you go to high school in Montreal? Then I'm just curious which uh, which high school. If so. Um. So I went to. That's kind of weird, but I went to Mayfield Secondary School. Um. Go Mavericks. I I say I graduated from there, but I actually graduated from Bill Crothers. Um. This, the sports program there, I did it through them. So I was like online when I was in Montreal, I did it through Bill Crothers and they had like a system in place. Right on. Um, yeah. Hey, a few moments ago, you mentioned your sister Tess. Is she the swimmer in the family? Do I have that right? 
Yeah, exactly. Who's That's competed right. for Canada at the Paralympics. Like this is a, a big time. You've got a lot of athletes in the family, I guess, but tell us <laughs> a little bit about, about your sister and her athletic uh, successes as well. Yeah, she's um, incredible. She started swimming when she was like, I want to say 13 and then 13, 14. And then she won a medal in Rio when she was 17. So um, yeah, she's amazing. Such a hard worker. Um, she's lived in Montreal for a while now, trains at the Nationals uh, or the, you know, the Olympic Stadium there. And um, yeah, I mean, she's just, she's incredible. She's like such an inspiration to me as a, a, you know, another athlete and her work ethic is like unmatched. I always say like, I have to work really hard to work hard. It doesn't come naturally. as naturally to me. Yeah. Right. And she, it, she's just like, it's like, there's no other way. And I'm always like so jealous of her. I mean, in a good way, but you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah. And then my, so she's three years younger than me. And then my other sister, Tara is two years younger than me. And she played every sport imaginable but she actually went to the u.s on a scholarship for volleyball so there's a lot of sports in the family we kept busy for sure not bad bad. i saw a picture i think recently of of your sister tess on the pool deck with a tv screen in the background showing one of your matches i think yeah 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 she was watching the quarters in miami and her teammates like now they're kind of into tennis and her coach was like oh well we have practice during her match but we can just put it on the tv in the back so like each time she had like a break between one of her reps she was just watching but she gets really nervous when she watches she just like kind of like squeeze like goes back and forth she doesn't really like it but she does it because it's nice <laughs> do you feel the same way when you watch her racing um yeah no it's it's pretty horrible i i uh just not having control i really like obviously having control as an athlete like i like being able to control what the outcome is and not having that control watching her is so stressful it makes me really really anxious but i mean i was there in rio when she won her medal and i mean we were obviously we were all there we were just crying like babies it was insane <laughs> so it's That's worth awesome. it it's worth the anxiety yeah i'll bet when you get those kind of highs um yeah. speaking of highs we're in an era right now here in Canada of sort of unparalleled success for Canadian tennis like we've never seen before. What's your reaction to some of the, the big results we've seen on both the men's and the women's side of things, singles and doubles the, the past few years? Yeah, it's been incredible to watch. Um, when, when I was growing up in Canada, obviously we had, you know, a couple people to look up to that, you know, were born and raised in Canada and um, other Canadians that were being sick or that were having success. Um, but now it's kind of like there's so many more for, I think, young Canadians to look up to. Um, obviously, you know, Bianca winning U.S. Open, however many years ago, that was it, three years ago. Something mm-hmm, like three that. already, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, was incredible to watch. Um, she's always so talented. She was so fun to watch even like when she was younger. So it was kind of like everyone knew that she was going to be amazing. But just, you know, to have that run there was incredible. Um, you know, Felix, Dennis, Milos, Vasek, um, all those men, like, there's just so many for people to look up to, which is incredible. And whereas before it was like, just, you know, one, maybe two. So it's nice that the, that everyone's having success. And then obviously Jeannie was amazing. Um, cause we were around, she's a year older than me. So grew up with her and then watching her and then obviously closer, um, Layla at the U.S. Open last year and being able to play doubles with her during that time where she was just having that 
insane run. And, you know, just. You should, you should take credit for part of it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> she gave me credit in one of her, like, after matches. She was like, oh, thanks, Aaron, for playing doubles with me and keeping me grounded. And I was like, <laughs> Layla, <laughs> she's so sweet. Uh, she's the best. So, yeah, that was obviously really fun. And then, I mean, I always grew up too. Gabby's like three years older than me, I think three or four. So for me, that was someone that I thought was incredible. Like I was always like, oh, you know, I would love to be like her one day, you know? And so, you know, gotta give a shout out to her as well because she's one of one of the best Canadian doubles players of all time, I think. Absolutely. Maybe the best. Maybe the best. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And it's nice now to be playing the same, you know, I see her almost every single week, which is nice. Was it tough for you a few years back? I think it was 2017. Was it a difficult decision to switch to represent New Zealand full-time in terms of tennis? Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, I it's something I never, ever took lightly. Um, it's hard because I always say that I wish that, like, I could have half of the New Zealand flag and half of the Canadian flag beside my name when I'm playing. Right. And it's, it's a little different just in the sense of if people don't know tennis, that they really um, think that we're playing for our country every single week, week in, week out, where we are playing for our country, but also we are playing a lot for ourselves. So I think that um, it's just different in the sense of it's such an individual sport. And um, I, I, you know, tried to do my research and with my family and with my coaches at the time and just tried to make the best decision for me at the time that was going to, you know, put me in the best position in the future. So yeah, it definitely, it's hard. Cause I want to say like, it was nice in um, us open or us open with Layla. Everyone's like, go Canada. And I was always like, Oh, Hey, I'm Canadian too. Like <laughs> <laughs> there's so many tennis players out there that have dual citizenship that it's like, I feel like it should be maybe talked about a little bit more. Um, and we, we should be able to talk about, you know, the different countries that we like, to, you know, that we represent or that, you know, make us who we are. So yeah, it definitely um, was a difficult decision. Um, but in saying that I do uh, like, I love New Zealand. It's one of the best, the best, I mean, most beautiful countries I've ever been to. Um, and hoping that I can, you know, try and make some history for them. So. Well, what I take away from that wonderful answer is that we can refer to you as Canadian anytime on the podcast and you're cool with that. <laughs> yes, you definitely All can. All right, good, good. <laughs> Are we going to see you and Layla Annie back together at some point as doubles partners in 2022, do you think? Yeah, I hope so. Um, you know, obviously she focuses on singles. She's still so, so young. So her body's fresh. So she can <laughs> play singles and doubles all the time, but you know, her priority is singles and mine is doubles. So, um, I've been playing lately with Rosolska, um, the Polish woman, and we've been having some good success. And so I've never been in a position where I've been able to play with, um, the same person for, you know, months on end. So right now we're set for the clay, and uh, probably the grass, but um, yeah, it's hard because when we have different priorities, but you know, who knows, sometimes, you know, if someone gets injured and I'm looking for a partner, if we split up and we're trying to go different routes, then for sure. But I really love playing with her. We had a lot of fun together and I think our games matched up really well. So hoping we can definitely play together again. Hey, teaming up with a Polish tennis player these days seems like a pretty good idea given the success of uh, Igos Fiontek and, and Huber Hercatch as well. Yeah, that was insane last week. 
Um, you guys made a, a final recently and, and you had a great result in, in Miami as well in the quarters where you really obviously took the number one seeds as far as you possibly could. How do you like ending a match in that 10 point tie break, especially one where you know you're so close against a really big team? Uh, would you rather just play it out regularly or are you okay with that sort of special tie break to end it in doubles? Oof. Some people, a lot of people ask me this. I would say in an ideal world, I would play it out. Um, I think that the, the 10 pointer is tough because sometimes it feels like it can literally be over in three to four minutes and some team can get hot for like five minutes. And it's a little frustrating if you've played well for an hour and a half or two hours, and then you get beat just because of, you know, a four to five minute hot streak. Um, but in saying that it does make the results very interesting. And so I think maybe for spectators, it is interesting to set, to watch, you know, like it's hard to call women's doubles and men's doubles, I think as well, because of the 10 pointer, it's hard to ever say, Hey, this, you know, you know, they're ranked higher, they're better. I think they're going to win because it can go either way on any given day. So I do think it does make it interesting. Um, I do like playing third sets a little better. So I do like grand slams, <laughs> but I do understand that it is what we have to do. So I'm trying to make it. Uh, I don't complain about it anymore. I used to complain about it a lot, but I don't anymore because I'm like, it's my life. It's just how it is. And there's that's not much all. you can do about it anyways. Right? No, that's my business, my job. So I'm yeah. just going for it. There you go. Hey, as I mentioned off the top, you're now top 40 in doubles career high of number 34. Um, are you at a point where financially it's starting to show some, some dividends? I know it's, it's type, you know, it's pretty tough to make headway in tennis as a, a primarily a doubles player. Is it starting to, uh, you know, yield those results for you on that side of things? Yeah, I think it's like anything. I think you, you know, I, I, I mean, tennis is a little different than other jobs, I think, because it's obviously top heavy um, financially, as everyone knows. But, um, you know, I, I grinded for a lot of years, I feel like. And so now it definitely is paying off where I, I see that success. And, you know, obviously I'm making more money than I was a year ago and three years ago. So yeah, I, I definitely see and that, you know, kind of what I was working for is the opportunity to get those big matches to, you know, make that big money and um, try to get as high in the rankings as I can and win those huge tournaments. And, you know, I have these goals for myself that I'm just kind of baby step working towards. Um, but yeah, I definitely, definitely can tell a difference. <laughs> I'm not counting my nickels and dimes as much anymore. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, does that mean I won't be seeing you at the Tevlin Challenger as I've seen you play a couple times before in October in Toronto, would you say? Oof. I don't, I would love to come back to Tevlin. I mean, I try, I always say um, that I'm trying to, uh, I'm still trying to play a little bit of singles. Not really. I haven't played in a while, but I sign when I can. So maybe I'll come there and try and play some singles and see there how it works. I, mean, I love that tournament. I love the Tevlins. They're great. When I, when I last saw you play there, you were playing doubles with Alexa, I believe. And oh, yeah. uh, the two of you just looked like you were having such a blast, like smiles all the time. Uh, just such positive energy on the court. It was really great. Really nice to see. Yeah. Did we, we won that, right? Uh, did you did. Yeah, I, think yeah. You did. <laughs> I forgot about that. That's awesome. <laughs>
it hasn't been held, I think, since that year that you won it because of the pandemic. So it's tough for me to think back because that seems like a lifetime ago in some ways. Um, when can Canadian tennis fans hope to see you play here in Canada? We do have news of the Grand B event becoming a 250 tourney. So that's good for Canadian tennis. National Bank Open, you know, formerly the Rogers Cup, of course, too. Uh, where might we see you on the Canadian calendar? I mean, I'll definitely play um, National Bank Open in Toronto. Um, I actually met Carl Hale the other um, week in Miami, which was really nice because I'd never, I think I probably met him when I was really young. Um, but it was nice to like, you know, have that interaction with him. And he was like, yeah, you definitely, I'm, I mean, obviously I'm coming to Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, my whole, my family's all there. So they'll all watch. Um, and then, yeah, I'm hoping to play Granby as well. So I'm hoping to play both of them because it's Granby's the week right before US Open, I think. Oh, I'd so, have to double check, but yeah, definitely in the, in, in August. So that's fantastic. That's great. Be yeah. great to see you. Uh, hey, thank you so much for taking the time for making this work. You're mid tournament right now. We're about to start, I should say another tournament. So it's just, you know, really nice of you to take the time for us on match point Canada. My co-host Ben couldn't be here tonight, but he'll be interested to listen and you'll have to come back and, and join both of us in Toronto this summer then. And uh, we'd love to have you back on. Yeah, totally. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. There you have it. Mike's interview with doubles player Aaron Ratliff, who, as you mentioned, dual citizenship uh, with New Zealand and representing Canada as well. It's nice to find these athletes. I know we've been making an effort to try and claim Emma Raducanu, who we can briefly, <laughs> we can briefly touch on in this episode because she was playing this past week in, in Stuttgart. Um, and she speaks fondly of Canada, even though she is British. But uh, as, as uh, you hit on in the interview, Great story for Aaron Ratliff, and I'm glad she's carved out the career she, she has so far. Yeah, Raducanu, that one was a bit of a stretch. I think we saw, oh, born in Toronto, yes, let's claim her as Canadian. But <laughs> exactly. she pretty much grew up and spent her formative years all in the UK. Whereas Erin uh, Routliff was born in New Zealand, and the story of her parents who were sailing around the world and uh, needed to find a place to give birth and... And some people recommended, oh, New Zealand's nice. You should you should go there. And so they stopped in New Zealand, and that's where she was born. I just found that uh, pretty entertaining. And uh, But for her, she moved back to Canada, she said, when she was young, raised in Caledon, Ontario, and now even living in Montreal. So, uh, yeah, I definitely consider her, uh, you know, mostly Canadian, really, when you think about yeah. it. But Canada, with the depth we have right now, clearly tough to crack the um, Billie Jean King Cup roster. Uh, even with her doubles ranking being so high. Um, mm. But in New Zealand, obviously not as much a tennis hotbed as we can now consider Canada, I guess. New Zealand has the top female uh, singles player at number 464 in the world, and their top doubles player aside from Aaron is number 368. So from the New Zealand perspective, if they could get a hold of Aaron Routliff, I can totally see why they wanted to a few years ago. And, uh, and I'm sure there's probably more funding available in New Zealand for her, whereas here in Canada, she'd be competing with so many other big names that we uh, currently have. Yeah, exactly. I was trying to think of any high profile tennis players from New Zealand. And uh, the only one that stands out is uh, doubles player Michael Venus, who's been top 10 in doubles, a great successful doubles player. And I believe won the French Open uh, five years ago with Ryan Harrison in doubles. So um, he's kind of the New Zealand fellow star doubles player um, from that country, which is obviously not as represented in tennis, but uh, great interview touching with um, Aaron Redliff and her impressive career as she continues it. There was so much tennis 
um, to get to just this past week. I feel like we were covering a lot of storylines because if you haven't listened already, we had the conversation with Bianca Andrescu, who is back competing in Stuttgart. And I think that's a good place to start just looking at how she fared. And we know how much uh, positivity I sort of sense from her in that five minutes. We just chatted with her earlier in the week, but also just, just getting that match win and, and getting match tough again. And, you know, before we get to Iga Spiontek, you were pretty impressed. I know we were chatting about her performance against Serena Sabalenka, even though it was a three-set loss. Yeah, and I mean, I don't, I don't care that Sabalenka struggled this year. When you're stepping on the court against a top five, top ten player in the world, that's a big match. And uh, Sabalenka's been playing consistently the past six months, and Bianca hasn't. So mm-hmm. you, you give the edge to, uh, to Sabalenka in that one as they step onto the court. And you hope for probably best case scenario that, yeah, Bianca can push it into a third set. And she did. And she leveled it back up at, at some point in that set, if memory serves correctly, and, and made a pretty good you know match of it. So I was impressed with that, considering Bianca hasn't played a tournament in six months. And it was only her eighth clay court match in the last four years, which is kind of a staggering statistic when you think about it. But she just hasn't been able to play on the dirt. So I think it's a huge positive uh, in terms of what she was able to do in that match. And more than that is the huge positive of just seeing how upbeat she was and how relaxed and calm she was and just seeming like at peace um, Mm -hmm. with being back on the tour that it didn't seem like she'd rush back too soon. And I think you got the same vibe. We were talking with someone who just was making the right decision for her to return now. Yeah, exactly. It reminded me of my conversation earlier in the season with Renee Stubbs and about, um, I think she was discussing Naomi Osaka at the time, but having to rediscover the love of the game. And if you're not in that headspace where you're not loving what you're doing, um, step aside. And we saw that from Ash Barty, of course, in her first retirement. And we know that was the right decision. Um, Bianca, this is something different. It was, you know, a six month break, but I think very much a mental kind of check away, just She's really never had a break from tennis in her life. You think about how, how young she still is. So I, I'm sure that was meaningful for her. And now she's back on court, I think, enjoying and loving every minute. And, uh, of course, enjoying the process, which she spoke to us about as well. Yeah, I mean, 21 years old. And, and think about your entire childhood, adolescence, and, mm-hmm. and now your first few years as a young adult have all been spent traveling the world with a tennis racket. And this was the first time where she could travel without the tennis racket. Yeah. And, and I think most professionals, um, you know, won't take the break like she did. Most will push through it and try and tough it out and, and, and go through the ups and downs, even if it's to their mental detriment. So mm-hmm. for Bianca to recognize that she needed this and to take that time, uh, kudos to her. And, you know, maybe kudos to players like Naomi Osaka, who've made it more acceptable to do something like this and to prioritize your mental health and to talk about it. So I think that's a good thing. Uh, I'm really happy uh, for Bianca. And and that being said, though, all the previous times that we talked to her, I don't feel like you could ever tell that that she was. And that's the thing, right? You never know what Mm -hmm. someone else is is going through and what they're feeling. So, um, you know, end of the day, uh, it seems like she's back on her own terms. I'm very excited to see what she could do in the next few months. And, and anything is really a bonus because it's, um, it's, it's almost like learning to play on the surface again after such a, 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 a small sample size as a professional tennis player. I think anything she's able to accomplish over the next month or so leading up to the French Open is, is just a bonus for her. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. It's it's all gravy, I think, in this comeback to, to start. And I think she's comfortable on the surface, honestly, just watching. We only have a two-match sample size from this past week, but you see her sliding across the red clay. I think she enjoys it. Her top spin and drop shots can play up on it. So, uh, And she will be competing uh, at Madrid as well. So she's going to have a solid schedule, I think, ahead of the French Open. We'll talk a little bit about the action in Stuttgart quickly and just the unbelievable run that Iga Sviantek uh, continues here. It's now a 23-match winning streak. She, of course, captured the Sunshine Double winning Indian Wells, then Miami. Prior to that, she had won uh, Qatar and now begins the clay, which we have spoken about as, of course, her best surface. And again, here she is hoisting another trophy, defeating Arena Sabalenka 6-2-6-2 in the final. I mean, I, I put this out on Twitter as a thought, Going into Roland Garros, um, Iga Swiatek surely is going to be the heavy favorite. And I had this thought that it, it's been a while we, since we've had a heavy women's favorite going into a slam since basically like peak Serena Williams days, if you think about it. Yes. Is Sviantek more of a lock than Nadal right now for the French <laughs> oh, Open title? That's an I interesting mean, take. You know, just because of his time off and, and unsure about what condition he'll be in at that point in time. But uh, yeah, she's looking like uh, like the biggest lock in quite some time. And what's really nice, I think, is to see someone assume the mantle of, of number one in your sport, whether it's tennis or, or mm-hmm. anything really, and assume that, that mantle, that pinnacle, the peak of the sport, and then thriving in that uh, position. Because for a lot of people, when you get to be number one, look... All eyes are on you. You've got the target yep. on your back and, and there's pressure there, whether people want to admit it or not, that's a new pressure and some athletes can handle it and some can't. And I think in, in recent years, we've seen examples of, uh, you know, Carolina Pliskova became number one for a very short amount of time. And, mm. and she kind of admitted that it was a little bit overwhelming. I believe uh, Caroline Wozniacki was number one for a while, wasn't able to have slam success while she held that yep. role and took a lot of flack for it as well. But here comes Iga, and she has this, yeah, 23-match win streak. Hasn't lost since she's become the world number one. And uh, my goodness, you know, great for her to, to do that. And um, I, I don't see her buckling anytime soon. I mean, so many of those match wins were straight sets. Now she's had a couple that have been a little tougher, um, although the final 6-2-6-2, um, rather routine. Uh, but I think it's great. I I Kudos to her, and I'm excited to see what what can happen in the next few weeks. And at Roland Garros, um, she's won it before, so it wouldn't be a shock if she won it again, especially with the role she's on. Yeah, it's it's an unbelievable run. I, I want to see Simona Halep back on the clay, actually, with that new partnership with Patrick Moradoglu, because that for me is like the wild card threat. We know how great she is on clay, and uh, she's. Uh, if we see her get back to her best level, could that be sort of a huge challenge for Sviantec? I wanted to mention Emma Raducanu, who was playing this tournament. This was her first pro tournament on clay, and I would say a very successful one. She wins two matches, uh, opened with a win over Storm Sanders comfortably, uh, defeats Tamara Korpach in the second round. And then had a good showing, honestly, against Iga Spiontek, who she lost in the quarters 6-4, 6-4. You look at some other score lines of the way Spiontek is taking out opponents. I think Radu Kanu is maybe gaining a bit more confidence as, as she's starting to almost have more of a full calendar year. This is really her first full year on tour. We knew there were going to be some growing pains. She's suddenly looking a lot more confident and getting some, some easier, more routine wins, which is a good sign. Raducanu is definitely someone I'm rooting for because um, so much negative 
press and pressure mm-hmm. since that U.S. Open win, which wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Uh, in particular, from you know British press media, which has always been incredibly tough on their players, their tennis players in particular, and just people on social media who 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 suck for lack of a better word. <laughs> And, uh, and I feel for this kid, you know what I mean? So I, I don't see how you can give her a hard time. As you mentioned, her first clay court tournament as a pro tennis player. I mean, this is a, a, a kid who, I, that was such an unexpected run. That final between her and Layla Annie was, I think, yeah. the most unexpected women's final I can ever think of. And, um, you know, give her a break and let her develop as a player. And uh, so to see her smiling, a lot of those pictures, you know, that uh, especially our friend Jimmy, Jimmy 48, our favorite tennis photographer, uh, a lot of smiling pictures. And um, you like to see that. Yeah, I, I think she's in a good space right now playing some good tennis. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. You can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. We're on Instagram, Matchpoint Canada, also on YouTube and Facebook. We'll shift over to the men's side, start on the ATP 500 in Barcelona. Carlos Alcaraz uh, returning and hoisting another trophy he had one hiccup really he was on fire coming into the clay court swing before losing to Sebastian Corda the previous week at Monte Carlo and here gets a few big time wins uh, to win the Barcelona Open for the first time in his career defeated Tsitsipas in a very memorable quarterfinal saved two match points against Alex Dimenauer in the semis and then beats Pablo Carreño Busta in an all-Spanish final for the title. And I think the, the question maybe to be raised here is if we are sort of grading the contenders right now going into the French Open with the information we have, is is Alcaraz inside the top three right now? Yeah, for sure. I think yeah. for me. Uh, and because Nadal hasn't played lately and because Djokovic is still trying to find his A game. And because everybody else is, you know, there isn't one or two like dominant players out there. Yeah, I mean, I was going to point to Tsitsipas because he won Monte Carlo, but then Alcaraz turns around and beats him here. So, yeah. And Alcaraz, where was that, you know, win for me in Monte Carlo when I picked him to win the thing for the (laughs) Tennis Canada Bracket Challenge? Yeah, Um, sorry. Which unfortunately, is they only do that for the Masters 1000s. So the Barcelona Open was not on the list. But um, yeah, it's it's really exciting again to see his his rise, which is pretty meteoric, and uh, and and I think this year, boy, this kid is going to accomplish some big things. I could see him winning a a slam this year or making a slam final this year, and it wouldn't even surprise me. And um, it's got me excited for the French Open because basically, for uh, you know the past fifteen twenty years, the French Open has been the most predictable men's slam. Uh, because you know that Nadal is probably going to take it. And so, as I said, again, Nadal, what shape is he going to be when he comes in there? Djokovic, although he's defending champ, is is not, you know, at his peak right now. So Alcaraz, to me, is, yeah, top three, you said. Definitely, I would put him top three. And, um, and, and I also want to say, boy, was it ever weird seeing someone other than Nadal jump into the pool with the ball kids? <laughs> yeah. Celebration. Cause That's right. Rafa did that like what, like 11, 12 uh, times? Yeah, before. like a dozen times. Unbelievable. And so um, it's just like, it's just one of those scenes, you know, like Federer on the grass or Novak at the Aussie Open, Rafa at the French. It's just strange seeing someone other than Rafa do that pool jump. Well, they should name that pool after him when he retires if they haven't already. <laughs> 
Well, the uh, the center court is already named off him, uh, after him. Pista Rafa Nadal is the court they're playing on for the semis yeah, so and Piscine, the final. Piscine Rafa Nadal. I don't know if that's, that's the perfect word for pool, but you know, my <laughs> yeah. French yeah. taking right. over. Right, right. I wonder if uh, it's it's the same for Spanish. Maybe I'm not sure, um, but man, I, I will mention just in that semifinal, Alex Dimenauer. Boy, oh boy, was he close to winning this match. He had a, a sitting forehand on that match point in the second set and uh, didn't take his opportunity, missed the forehand. Alcaraz flips around the match and instantly takes the third 6-4. So if you get a shot against one of these guys, um, Djokovic, Nadal, Alcaraz now will even say you have to take the chance or they will they will turn around the match. They're too, too strong. The same, A similar situation happened uh, in, in Belgrade, which will shift over to uh, Novak Djokovic. Disappointment, obviously, in Monte Carlo, which we touched on last week, where he looked rusty and lost to Davidovic Fakina. I must say he got to the final here, but had some shaky looking matches along the way. It started with fellow Serbian Laszlo Shera, who's a good clay court player. He had a sitting forehand that he missed that probably, if he makes it, takes him to an upset win. Djokovic survives that. Three sets over Kekmanovic. Another three sets against Hachinov. Finally, Andre Rublev defeats him for the title. This is the first time actually Rublev has beaten Djokovic, and now he has a victory over all of the big three. So um, I'm trying to evaluate if this is a good or, you know, curious tournament for Novak. He did win a few matches. Yeah, it's got to be good. You you make the finals of a tournament. That's good. Uh, I mean, most players would be pretty, pretty happy with that. And considering the progress that he's making, you know, losses to Yuri Vesely, Davidovich, Fakina, uh, at least Rublev is a, is a top guy. So you feel mm-hmm. like that one is a little bit more, you know, palatable. And uh, so the losses are getting more understandable, I suppose. Uh, yeah. And he's, he, he battled his way through and, and to see him doing that. And, you know, if you're going to do that, obviously in front of your home crowd where you're getting that kind of vibe and that kind of energy is the place where, you know, so maybe this is what he needed to kind of get back on track. It's early still. He's hardly played any tournaments in how many months. Um, and and still dealing with, you know, a lot of distractions off the court as well for him this year, 2022. So yeah. maybe we're finally getting to a stage where the uh, those distractions are starting to uh, fall off a little bit and he can focus more on just the tennis and maybe the questions and press are more just on the tennis. And, uh, yeah, he's still got time to get it together for when it matters the most. And, and you know, when it becomes best of five with his experience, um, you know, that also uh, plays to Novak's favor. Yeah, certainly. Um, Madrid and Rome still ahead uh, as key kind of tune-ups to to be in peak physical condition for for the best of five. He did sort of fade in this third set. Rublev took it six love um, to win the title. 11 career ATP titles now for Andre Rublev, which is a very impressive total at his age. I think he's still what, 24, 24 years old still. Um, so that's very impressive. And I just also had the thought that I feel like he's often a bit overlooked on clay, despite having some, some pretty solid clay success. I mean, he beat Nadal on the surface last year. He made the quarterfinals of the French open in 2020. So maybe he's someone, maybe he's could be a bit of a dark horse guy at the French open. If he continues uh, this solid play on the surface. Yeah. Oh, that dark horse term. I never know how to employ that properly, but anyhow. (laughs) um, Yeah. Look, anyone who beats Nadal on clay um, should not be overlooked on the surface ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, he also beat Dominic Team back in 2019 in Hamburg, and uh, Team right. was uh, pretty ferocious on clay back then uh, when he was playing more regularly. So, um, 
Yeah, and, and you know what? Rublev hasn't played a ton. I was looking at his clay court results the last couple of years. He hasn't played a ton on the surface since the pandemic started, which disrupted the clay court schedule there a couple of years ago. So um, clearly feeling pretty good on it right now. And uh, look, if we put Nadal, Djokovic, and um, Alcaraz as our potential top three at uh, Roland Garros, uh, Rublev would definitely be someone who would be in the uh, the next uh, maybe tier of three players the way he's played this past year and, and what he's accomplished this past week. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, quickly, just on Felix Ogeliasim, um, the previous week, I think Monte Carlo had obviously been a letdown, lost that first match to Lorenzo Musetti. I think he found his form a little bit more on the surface in Barcelona, getting two match wins, defeating Carlos Tabernere, good clay quarter, good Spanish player in his first round, tough three sets. Beats Francis Tiafo, very exciting, entertaining player. Of course, we love to watch him. Beats him in straight sets and then loses a tough three-setter to Diego Schwartzman, who's an outstanding clay court player and who's, who's someone who's been to a semifinal of the French Open. So I think this was definitely a step in the right direction for Felix, who's gaining a bit more confidence, and he's going to have a few more tournaments to go before Roland Garros. Yeah, I don't have like a ton to add to that, but just that it's obviously a, a step in the right direction. It's a positive for Felix. Um, get him feeling more positive out there. And uh, as you mentioned, still a couple of big tournaments to go before Roland Garros to hopefully build on on that momentum. I mean, yeah, I would put Felix Ojaliasim in the category as a, a dark horse contender, as someone who, yeah, he's ranked top 10 or or thereabouts, right? But uh, but hasn't had a lot of clay court success and has been in a bit of a slump the last couple of months. So there's a guy who could get on a street, could get hot and, and find his clay court wheels and uh, and have a good run at Roland Garros, especially if the draw is favorable to him. But uh, yeah, there's been, I mean, between him and Dennis, there's been a lot of questionable losses lately too. So uh, who mm-hmm. knows what to expect. So let's just take it, uh, you know, one tournament at a time, as cliched as that sound and sounds. And and for right now, yeah, that, that was positive. I think what uh, what he went through this past week. Yeah, should mention that was Barcelona, by the way, not uh, not Belgrade. And the Madrid Open qualifying will start this week before the tournament officially gets underway. We have to touch on this news. I think it was sort of the tennis news and political news of the week. Everybody was discussing the decision from the Wimbledon Championships and their move to ban Russian and Belarusian players uh, from competing at their 2022 Grand Slam event. This in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, not wanting to have really any visual of Russian players whatsoever at their tournament. And of course, Belarus who's supporting Russia in this invasion. Uh, They don't want the presence of Belarusian players as well. This is a hot topic. It's, it's a very difficult situation to discuss because it whichever side of the issue we're falling on here, I think we want to both make it very clear that um, we fully condemn Russia's actions and um, through, through this horrifying invasion and just the, the scenes, I think day to day in the news are heartbreaking. What's what's happening in Ukraine, however you feel about this issue. Yeah, well said. And it's a tricky one for us to comment on a little bit because this isn't like the Mike and Ben podcast. This is the Tennis Canada podcast. So Mm -hmm. keeping that in mind as well, what we're sharing right now are kind of our own personal reactions and views just to make that clear. Uh, And I don't even know exactly how I feel about this yet, this decision by Wimbledon. Uh, It's they're definitely taking a stance. And um, look, if I kind of shed some light on the one side of it, uh, which seems to be the minority, as most people are kind of uh, jumping on Wimbledon for making this decision, and and I can understand why, but to kind of look at the other side of things a bit, 
Uh, other sports have banned Russians from competing in their events, uh, Russian teams, soccer, uh, hockey as well, International Ice Hockey Federation. So it's not like this is unheard of, uh, first and foremost. I realize that tennis players are individuals, but what's the difference between a hockey or a soccer team, which is just a collection of, you know, 18, 20 individuals as well. Um, I just can't imagine. What I think of is I, I can't imagine as a Ukrainian tennis player, if I was a Ukrainian tennis player, I can't imagine what it would feel like to see a Russian tennis player at the same tournament or across the net from you, given what's going on in your home country where friends and families' lives are in absolute peril. So from that standpoint, um, I think that the decision is not, uh, I mean, it's not so controversial that you can't imagine why a tournament like Wimbledon might make it. Um, and so I think I can certainly see it through that lens, uh, despite the fact that it's not like a cut and dry, obvious answer. Um, and, and I don't know, I just kind of put myself in their shoes. And I think, think of what Ukrainians are going through right now and Ukrainian athletes. And, uh, you know, so if there's some Russian athletes banned from a tournament, I can understand how that really pales in comparison to the, the bigger picture right now. Yeah, it, it certainly pales in, in terms of the bigger picture of, of what's happening um, with, you know, thousands of lives ruined and lost. It's uh, really unimaginable. I, I guess my, my issue, the crux of my issue with Wimbledon's decision is I sort of view tennis players specifically as almost independent contractors as opposed to being in that team environment especially where if you're you know competing for an olympic team you're receiving funding from your country and i think the case for russian tennis players as athletes or belarusians so many of them they might not even live in that country anymore they might not really receive funding from their country anymore or have that connection they were operating under the neutral flag and I, i just think it's it's obviously a shame for any athlete to suffer from the decisions, the horrible choices from their government and a dictator. And and maybe they feel, maybe they feel in a a difficult spot as well to speak out on this issue. Is that going to pose a risk to family back home? Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, they're caught in an impossible position. I think I've seen some suggestions that, well, if the Russian players would just denounce uh, Putin and the government and, and this war, then they would be comfortable with them playing. But I, you know, with their families being back there as well, and we know what kind of uh, government and what kind of actions they may take over there. Uh, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable speaking out either if I knew that my, my parents or my siblings or, or family members' right. lives were also at risk. So it's a, it's a tricky situation from that perspective as well. But uh, again, I think Wibbledon's decision is not to penalize directly the, the Russian and Belarusian tennis players. It's, it's just their way of, of you know, something that can be done to show Russia that this is just completely unacceptable, um, I, I guess, is, is, is how um, you know, they must be seeing it. But uh, as you mentioned right off the top, it's just horrific what's going on over there. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, our, our thoughts and prayers as trivial as it seems to say that, but, um, but definitely are with uh, Ukrainians in this moment. Yeah, I, I'll just add that, and this is understandable, um, ATP and WTA are firmly opposed to the decision of Wimbledon, but Wimbledon is a separate organization, so they can uh, make this choice um, unilaterally without consultation from those two tours. Uh, so it, as of now, it's going to go through. We're going to keep going through with our podcast. We have more tennis upcoming. We'll be on track for the Madrid Open. Bianca Andrescu playing again, along with fellow Canadians. Thank you again to Hotel X, the official hotel of Matchpoint Canada for this episode, guys. We will talk to you next time.